You're listening to On The Way, a podcast for the Center for Bible Study. I'm your host, Max Botner. There's something about actual genre or form that the letters of Paul are written in that is their, their letters from Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus or whomever, but to you, plural. Mm-hmm. doesn't take much. It's a kind of easy trick of the eye for a reader to sort of put themselves in the in the role of the addressee of the letter. We know they weren't originally addressed to us, but it's not that hard to pretend, right, that you're just being spoken directly to. In a way, that's true of all scripture, is that religious communities, so Christians with the Christian Bible, read it often as addressed to them in the present and not just to the ancient audiences. With Paul, it's easier not to do that, right? It's yeah. easier to sort of let the words wa- wash over you as as if he were speaking directly to you. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We've got another excellent episode for you today. My guest is Dr. Matthew Novenson. Matt is professor of biblical criticism and biblical antiquities at the University of Edinburgh in Edinburgh, Scotland. I've known Matt for quite a few years now. He's a really, really great guy. Um, really generous scholar, wonderful human being, all the, all the wonderful uh, adjectives we could add on. He um, has written a number of really important books. His first published uh, dissertation, Christ Among the Messiahs, award-winning book, really, really fantastic book. And then uh, his second book, The Grammar of Messianism, also another really important book. Anybody who's taken classes from me before in the past on messianism will know Matt's name really well because I reference him a lot. He was really formative for me in my own uh, research and writing on Davidic messianism in the Gospel of Mark. So really value his, uh, his scholarship. Today, we're actually talking about his work on Paul. Um, his, his most recent book, although he's got another Paul book coming out, which he mentions in the episode. But the book we're talking about today is Paul, Then and Now. Really excellent collection of essays, gets at uh, Pauline studies from a variety of different angles. It does get a bit nerdy at times, but if you are into biblical studies or into Paul in particular, this is the kind of stuff you want to be reading. He's got a lot of great conversations, um, engaging different questions from different angles, pushing back against dichotomies that are unhelpful. And um, so I think you're really going to enjoy the conversation and I highly encourage you to get the book if you're into um, scholarship and into Pauline studies. Before we dive into the episode, just want to encourage you again uh, to make sure that you are liking the episode. If you haven't yet, please do subscribe to us or follow us on whatever uh, platform you're using. If it's on the YouTube channel, please make sure you're subscribing. Uh, If you're listening to us on the podcast, you can do so either through subscription or uh, following and uh, writing us a review. That would be awesome. I want to continue to mention that we um, are welcoming people to become members of the Center for Bible Study. This is an awesome opportunity for you to make a recurring uh, tax-deductible donation to the Center for Bible Study of whatever dollar amount you choose. That qualifies you for membership, and your membership gains you entrance into all future Center for Bible Study classes, gains you access to all past Center for Bible Study classes, the recordings, the notes, the PowerPoints. Uh, You're also helping to support us in our 
online uh, endeavors to provide high quality biblical content like this episode. And we'll also give you a shout out to say thanks, as well as a monthly newsletter. So you get a lot of really great stuff. You're part of an awesome community and um, you're able to help out this ministry as we continue on. So I want to encourage you to consider that. There's a link in the description. You can follow that to become a member for the Center for Bible Study. And we would very, very much appreciate your help there. And with that, and without further ado, let's go ahead and jump into our conversation with Matt Novenson. Well, welcome everybody back to the podcast. I am super excited today to be joined by a, a friend and a, a really incredible colleague, Dr. Matthew Novenson. Um, we're going to be talking about his book today, Paul, Then and Now. Fantastic book. Really excited to dive into it. Uh, Matt, thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. It's a pleasure to uh, chat with you in this format, Max. So yeah. thank you. Normally it's been in person at a pub in the past, yeah, so that's, that's just right. a different different format. But um, I, if I can, I just want to share one story about uh, Matt, just because I think it illustrates um, just what a charitable, charitable scholar and excellent guy he is. So um, when I was working on my, my PhD, I was floundering for the first couple of years. And I don't know if you can attest to this, Matt, is supervising PhD students, especially in the UK, you know, when you just dive into things, oftentimes it takes a little while to figure out what the heck you're doing. And it took me uh, most of my time actually in St. Andrews to figure out exactly what I was doing. And um, so it was a couple of years into trying to write the dissertation and I came across Matt's book, which I'd been wanting to read for a while, but I wasn't sure exactly what I was writing on. So my birthday was coming up. And at this point in my marriage, my wife knows all this guy wants his books anyway. So just let him order a book, whatever. And um, and so I'm like, all right, well, I really want to get this book, uh, Christ Among the Messiahs. So I got the book, started reading it, couldn't put it down. And I, everything in my mind in terms of what I'd been thinking about and Christology and Messianism just like sort of clicked. And I realized in an instant kind of what I wanted to do for my for my dissertation. Um and that began really for me just a, a great opportunity to chat with Matt and form a relationship there. And he had been so gracious with me. He was working on his second book, The Grammar of Messianism, which um, also was really formative in my thinking. And uh, he even shared with me, um, well, many conversations, but even a, a pre-publication chapter that was, again, really formative to my thinking. So Matt, I really appreciate your scholarship a lot. Oh, that's a long way of saying that and appreciate the way that you model just generosity uh, to younger scholars who are trying to figure out what we're doing in the world. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah. And um, I, I, just to get us started, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey. Actually, I, this is new to me. I, I don't think we've ever talked about this. How did you get into biblical studies? Um, I'd love to hear just a little bit about that. And and then maybe also what motivates you to do the work that you're you're doing today? Yeah, uh, I got into biblical studies. I da I dabbled in it as an undergraduate, uh, and then dabbled a little deeper as a master's student, and then eventually as a PhD student, sort of jumped in the deep end. I had um, in my undergraduate, I started as an English major and changed to philosophy, actually. Uh, and then from and then I added a a sort of theology and religion as a second. I ended up double majoring in uh, philosophy and then also theology, uh, but not really biblical studies. Although I did um, I did start both 
Greek and Hebrew in that undergrad degree. So, and uh, that was probably the kind of gateway drug, I think, is languages. The languages? Um, yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, probably. And then I did a generalist theology uh, master's degree. And uh, during which I realized, you know, um, you notice when you're the one person who really loves the language courses and other people are sort of just can't wait for them to be over with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that is kind of the, that's the, for me, that was a litmus test. Like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm into this and into a certain aspect of this in a way that other people aren't. So maybe that means that I, I should, uh, look really closely at this. Um, so then I did a THM and PhD sort of all in new Testament. And, and I was like, yeah, that, that's the, that's where, I found my, uh, yeah, the, the thing I most love to do. Uh, was there ever a I, moment for you or was it kind of just more of like a, a progressive thing? Like try this, oh, this is kind of cool. What's the next step sort of thing? Or did you have like a moment where you were like, wow, this is really great. I would love to spend my life being a scholar. Yeah, no, I, I well, I can't think of no one like <laughs> conversion story moment, uh, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Seeing the light of, uh, and coming to biblical studies. Um, no, it was probably a process like that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, I was wandering. I, right. I knew I wanted to do humanities and then I knew I was interested in kind of philosophy and religion kind of things. And then, um, yeah, it just sort of kept inching and inching that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and you've, yeah, figured out that those, uh, well, I was and remained really interested in philosophical and theological questions. Biblical studies lets you, it, it, it's just different. It unsettles things because you're reading in a different language context than your own. Mm -hmm. And you're asking not just constructive normative questions, but historical ones and textual ones, which means, I don't know, it, it's set up so as to get outside your own head a little bit more, mm -hmm. maybe something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, in ways connected to like what I talk about in this book that we're discussing right, about, exactly. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thinking about some of these questions about God and the universe and so on, but thinking about how other people thought them, who thought about them very differently from how mm -hmm. uh, I or other moderns do. Um, and yeah, I just kind of really took a shine to that and have managed to keep doing it for a while now. Yeah, yeah. And what, what motivates you most now to, to do the work that you do? I mean, you've done a lot of, obviously, a lot of really important formative work on messianism. And in my mind, kind of helped re reframe some of the conversation or at least provide other avenues forward other than just, hey, what were models of messianism or something like that? Um, but, but also with, with your work on Paul, but very much historically focused um, in, your, in your scholarship. What, what is... What what drives you as a, a scholar today? Two main things come to mind, I guess. I mean, one is just a love of an interest in the subject matter. Like I, uh, I may someday tire of it, but I haven't <laughs> yet. Yeah. Right? I mean, I kind of consider it a consider myself very lucky to get to get up each day and like work on the next sort of question related to all this. Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, I have what feels like a bottomless interest in the subject matter, although I may reach the bottom sometime. But I, it it just yeah, it's uh, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I love working with students. It's the other. I do. I enjoy it when a research leave comes around and you have sort of six months just to work on a project. But much more than that, and I think I really miss a classroom setting and just 
well, it again has to do with getting out of your own head, uh, mm -hmm. right? Because uh, if you, when you teach as well as research, it there's always kind of new inputs, right? Mm -hmm. uh, students, students at all levels, but graduate students especially, like see things that uh, you as a teacher haven't seen yet, and sometimes undergraduates too. But and that uh, that makes it easy to sort of get up and go to work. Uh, the idea that yeah. if you because every new uh, class session is a, I mean, I, you know, I get to see them learn new things, some of which I already know, but also I learn new things that I went into the room not expecting that I would uh, learn. So I really, yeah, uh, working yeah. with students is uh, one of the the main things that gets me up in the morning. That's cool. Well, and I'll say if anybody's looking to do a PhD in the UK, this is this is a guy you definitely want to consider studying with if you're <laughs> if you're in for that kind of thing. You have an awesome experience. Um, okay, I, I'd love to dive into the book. And um, I think this kind of gets at the general tenor of a lot of what you're doing in the book, which is to really just kind of raise the question of why it's so challenging for modern scholars to actually read Paul on his own terms. Um, you, you quote Robert Morgan, I think I, if I was counting almost in every chapter, either in the chapter or in a footnote, uh, and this is the quotation, in saying what Christianity was for Paul, they are often saying what it is for them. So this, this kind of easy shift between making what is ostensibly a historical claim, but it always seems to be more than that. And they're, they're, and some of what you're getting at in the book also is, I think, trying to say, hey, can we actually keep these two things separate so that the historical piece can actually be just historical? Um, but yeah, so what, what makes it so challenging, first off? What, what's, what's the deal with Paul? Why is this guy so tough? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah, you put your finger on, I think, what is the, the, the key problem in the book. I, and there's several essential parts to an answer to that question, I think. Um, one of them that uh, a few of the essays are devoted to there is the is um, something congenital in Protestantism, I think. Um, and I say this, and I write about this in the book as a, mm -hmm. I mean, critical, but as an insider, I mean, I'm, a, I'm born and raised Protestant uh, myself. So I, I like I get the I get why it happens. But part of the book looks at actually kind of the history of interpretation, especially from the 16th century to the present. And uh, I think it's not an accident that, uh, well, in, if institutionally and bibliographically, right, most Pauline studies, I mean, if you just sort of count books on a bookshelf, uh, tends to come from institutionally Protestant spaces mm -hmm. and has for hundreds of years, right? Mm -hmm. And I argue in here that that's not accidental, that, I mean, uh, you know, uh, Martin Luther was more forthright than most in saying, uh, you know, he, he, he had a canon within a canon and was willing to name it. Uh, and yeah. to the extent that he made Paul his patron saint, you know, I, I think there's something about the exigence, exigencies of church history that uh, it's, it's, it's not an accident that it's in uh, Protestant spaces, historically Protestant spaces where the study of Paul, especially tends to flourish and right, uh, resources are directed to it and so on. Um, so there's something there. And I, I talked too about if it's how, how very different 
an experience it can be to read uh, a number of really fascinating books on Paul written by Roman Catholic scholars or Jewish scholars or atheist scholars, because they don't relate to the primary text in the same way. Uh, they just don't seem as obsessed with Romans and Galatians either, right? Is is another thing yeah, you, no, you that's pointed right. out. Yeah. It's, it's uh, a lot of Protestant scholarship. You know, we could think about somebody like Bauer or whatever, but so focused on Romans and Galatians is like the the substructure of Paul's theology. And, you know, you point out, you look at some church fathers, particularly before Augustine, it's, it wasn't an inevitability that Romans would be the, you know, summa of Paul's theology at that point in the church's life. And even today, if someone doesn't have quite the same vested interest, it seems like they're willing to read Paul in different ways. It doesn't require a, Ro a Romans Galatians, you know, uh, nucleus. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's, we, uh, we are all, you know, uh, creatures in part of, well, of all the influences that bear down upon us. But one of those I think is, uh, you know, the history of religions, the history of Christianity, especially in the study of, uh, canonical Christian texts. And the study of Paul, it, it, you know, especially in the history of Protestantism. Um, and I, I, uh, I try to, I, I, di I diagnose it as a critic, but I'm also an insider to it. Like I, I, I know, I, I can feel <laughs> what it feels like for Protestant interpreters who, who, uh, have that kind of compulsion. Um, and the other main thing, uh, in answer to the question, why, why does this happen with Paul is, I think this is true. This uh, I was discussing this with Morwenna Ludlow, uh, a great patrist from Exeter in the UK. And, uh, she made this point, which I, on reflection, I think is right that, that there's something about, um, I mean, the actual genre or form that the letters of Paul are written in, that is their, their letters from Paul and Timothy and Sylvanus or whomever, but to you plural mm -hmm. and sort of, it doesn't take much. It's a kind of easy trick of the eye for a reader to sort of put themselves in the, in the role of the addressee of the letter. You can, I mean, we know they weren't originally addressed to us, but it's not that hard to pretend, right. That you're just being spoken directly to. And that, I mean, that in a way that's true of all scripture is that, uh, religious communities. So Christians with the Christian Bible read it often as addressed to them in the present and not just to the ancient audiences. But if you compare, you know, uh, compare a lot of sayings of Jesus in the gospels where there's a narrative frame that says he said this to the scribes, right? Or he said this to Mary and Martha, or he said this to so-and-so. And then you have to do an additional step of relating yourself to the scribes or to Mary and Martha or whomever. But with Paul, it's easier not to do that, right? It's yeah. easier to sort of let the words wa wash over you as, as if he were speaking directly to you. And I think yeah. there's something to that dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, I talk about that with uh, students basically every semester when we talk about biblical interpretation is there's something about Paul's letters in particular that we, for we forget that we're not the addressees of the letters in a way that we don't do that with any other part of the canon. Um, mm. If we're reading that as a, as, as Christian scripture. And I, yeah, I think it has to do with the, you probably has to do with the history that you, you know, you discuss in the book. Um, it probably has something to do. And I don't know if this is as true in the UK where you teach, 
there's probably truth to it, but certainly in American evangelicalism, the context that I'm kind of embedded in, in my role here is, um, you know, Paul has often been, there's a desire to make the Bible into a series of, you know, propositional statements or commands or, or whatever. And I think there's something about Paul's letters in a way that you don't have necessarily with the Gospels, because narrative is a little bit more difficult to do this, this kind of um, easy movement into, um, you know, commands, um, like, or, or just, you know, basic propositional statements. So I wonder if that's part of it as well. I think in a context, too, where people want the Bible to give them, you know, really black and white answers to a lot of questions, it's um, Paul's letters are not necessarily in fact, but in at least in appearance, maybe more conducive to that kind of a reading strategy than, say, the Gospels or other parts mm -hmm. of the Bible. And so I think that's probably part of it, too. Um, I want to ask you about about this uh, question. So when we think about Pauline studies, you know, it's typical to kind of go through the various schools, right? The Lutheran Paul or whatever you want to call him, the, the New Perspective Paul, um, the Apocalyptic Pauline School, and then, of course, the Paul within Judaism School. Just had Matt Thiessen on a little while ago, so we got to talk about oh, his yeah, book, yeah. A Jewish Paul. And um, so he's a great kind of representative of that. But um, one of the things that I was really chewing on with your book is that sometimes I wonder if we're like those schools can be tribal, but there's another sense in which I think the field could be kind of um, construed. And I, this is something that I felt when I was reading your book. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on this. I was wondering if maybe there's kind of three tribes, not necessarily equally represented, because maybe you have some that get way more play and have traditionally, but different ways of thinking about how Paul should be studied and read. One would be the the Paul with theology, right? So if we think about like great names like Tom Wright, um, John Barclay, you know, you quoted John as saying Paul's language is irreducibly theological, and you kind of probed what that even what he means by that. Um, then there's the the sort of Paul without theology school, like we need to get theology out of Pauline studies. Uh, you mentioned Stanley Stowers as, as one representative of that. There's others as well. And then there's maybe even the, I, I, I was looking for a name. I, the first two I kind of took from your book, but the third one I was thinking like Paul beyond historical criticism or uh, Paul even beyond any kind of redescription, historical redescription project. So like the problem with the discipline is that historical criticism has reigned and now we need to sort of annex that and just read Paul in different ways. So these are very different competing reading strategies, ideological products, uh, projects. And I'd love for you to just kind of speak into that, that issue a little bit um, and how, how you think your book, what you're trying to do in your book, how your book intervenes into that conversation. Um, because Pauline studies, it strikes me as being a very tribal discipline. I'm not sure if there's any discipline in biblical studies that's quite so tribal <laughs> as Pauline studies. And, and maybe again, that goes back to the, it seems like the most is in state at stake in how we read Paul. So that might be part of the explanation to that. Um, but anyway, anything you'd like to share kind of about that and your, your kind of assessment of the lay of the land and how, what you're trying to do in the book in order to kind of speak to the context. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a good observation. And I think, uh, 
some version of that kind of way of slicing up the field probably has some legs to it. Uh, I mean, I certainly think, you know, we do well to, uh, not to just think in the ruts of, of sort of what the introductions or handbooks tell us, right. That there are precisely four ways of reading Paul. You could be Lutheran, new perspective or apocalyptic or whatever. Uh, that's not the case, right? Every such, uh, every such rubric is a, um, in, in imposition. It's a, it's an attempt to organize mm -hmm. the, the discussion in some way. And so certainly no one should, should rule the day. And it's the case that, I mean, those labels, especially, uh, Lutheran new perspective, apocalyptic are all very inner Christian. And in fact, inner Protestant again, mm -hmm. right. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, all of the, um, I mean, that is a very important you know, recent history of research, uh, and from each of those, uh, scholars from within each of those, you know, who, who fly each of those flags, uh, I've learned a great deal. So I have, I have sort of books or articles within each of them that I, uh, like better than others and so on. But, um, but it's interesting that right. All of the, the leading lights and all those are, it's, it's a kind of inner Protestant discussion. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it doesn't even question the uh, sort of close nexus between Paul and constructive Christian theology. Whereas the, the way you've, uh, just divided it up about Paul with theology, Paul without theology, Paul beyond historical criticism and so on, uh, is a more, well, it's, it, it takes a wider view. And I mean, it actually encompasses more of the scholarship and it also sort of dares to, <laughs> to, to question that, you know, not just decades, but centuries old sort of, mm -hmm. uh, marriage between Paul and constructive Christian theology, especially mm -hmm. Protestant. So, um, I mean, the field nowadays, this is a, the field nowadays is, uh, far more diverse mm -hmm. religiously, ethnically, gender wise, and so on than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, if you go into certain SBL rooms, it still can look pretty homogenous, but relative sure. to what it has been. And, and so I think it is important when, if you're for our own sakes, as if you're a researcher, or certainly if you're describing it to students, not to talk about the field as if it is still just, you know, a very small kind of in-house debate amongst certain kinds of Protestants. Um, so for that reason, I think the way you introduced it there it, it, it is quite helpful. Um, Stowers is a, a great example because uh, he just really uh, boldly kind of called a spade a spade, right? And says uh, that the study of Paul has been crypto-theological in all kinds of ways and mm -hmm. uh, and it's possible to read it otherwise. And then he says, watch me do it, right? Yeah, his, yeah. his book on Romans, which is a really remarkable yeah. book for that yeah. reason, partly. Rereading um, Romans, for those who haven't read it, that that is one of the, uh, I think, most important books written on Romans. Uh, would you agree, Matt? I, I think yeah, it's it's just such an important book. They had a review panel of it was it a year or two ago at the SBL, and um, you know, I mean, people agree, disagree with parts of Stowers, but there's there's it's unquestionably an incredible piece of scholarship. And agree or disagree with it, it will expand your horizons when you're reading Romans in a, in a number of really wonderful ways. Yeah, and then that I mean, uh, so the kind of third option you mentioned. 
I mean, Laura Nasrallah illustrates this really well. It is, it's similarly a kind of radical questioning of the roots of the discipline, but in a different direction from what Stowers does, right? So Nasrallah, um, Eleni Johnson DeBoffrey also uh, is really interesting on this, right? As, um, I mean, they both would have interests that are more theological than Stowers does maybe, but, but hmm. they're actually questioning the extent to which historical criticism is uh, as, uh, its hegemony has been, uh, you know, to the harm of readers. Um, other, que other questions so, you might ask of Paul, right? Yeah. yeah. So, um, anyway, uh, I don't, I don't generally try, I, I don't in the book and I'm not inclined to, uh, in general kind of try to organize the field uh, mm -hmm. in that kind of way, just because what I've, uh, I'm kind of chasing the, the, the outer edges, the things that uh, aren't included in the, you know, kind of traditional potted histories of the field. And um, to that extent, I mean, th this book is, it's maybe a little bit Pollyannish this way, but it tries not, it, it tries to avoid tribalism. It tries to, mm -hmm say, well, you know, I'll never convince every, everyone of anything in particular, but I can say, you know, up front, I have an interest in and a sympathy with aspects of a lot of these readings. And I'm not, I'm not interested in shutting down avenues of inquiry. Uh, I'm interested in opening it up and, 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 uh, so yeah, so the book tries to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure the book, well, for those who bother to read it, it might alienate some people, but it tries to kind of open the field up and get uh, interesting readings and observations from some of these different schools or, or whatever to, to talk to each other a little bit, at least within the mind of the author and then hopefully yeah. for the readers. Yeah, no, I think that comes across in the book. I, I you know, I, I don't think it's hard for me to imagine it would alienate anybody. I think it does a really nice job of trying to ask questions from different angles and create bridges for impossibility for further conversation. I, I think it is a, with the fault, with the, with the field of Pauline studies being as tribal as it is, I do think at some level it is actually, uh, it works against the betterment of the field as a whole, because I think any discipline uh, is more likely to advance when conversations, especially across ideological lines are actually happening and people are open to new ideas and fresh ideas and, it's it's just unfortunate and i mean it's wonderful in that it is more diverse now probably than it is uh, it has ever been and as you say it, it should still be much more diverse but um but uh we need to actually be having the conversations <laughs> so i appreciate mm -hmm. that the book's trying to trying to do that um and yeah as i was thinking of these different categories i was thinking more along the lines of it seems to me like if I just imagine conversations in my mind's eye, someone like a Tom Wright uh, might really disagree with, you know, someone like Beverly Gaventa, but they would both probably be able to have a conversation because they're they're after theological ends in uh, quite often when they're reading the text. Whereas I know Tom, you know, if he's thinking about other scholars that, you know, are trying to get past that. For him, that would probably be a non-starter, right? And so, in, in some ways, it, it, as I was thinking about these categories, it's it's almost like um, these are sort of more. 
I think ideological epistemological commitments that people have and it's just a question of like to what extent others are open to having dialogue with people that fall outside of their their camp and what what end they think the bible should be used for so um okay so you asked the question in one of your chapters one of my favorite chapters in the book did paul uh, abandon either judaism or monotheism and I love the answer. I'm going to pull a quote out from end of page 54 onto page 55. Um, I think this is one of the best succinct answers I've ever heard to the question. So I'll, I'll read it for the audience and then I'll let you speak into it however you want. But you write that the comparison is not between Judaism and Christianity, the latter concept being not yet available to Paul, but between Jewish piety in the present evil age and Jewish mythology about the perfect age to come, or in other words, between everyday Judaism and eschatological Judaism. So uh, would you be willing to uh, unpack for us a little bit of what you're, what you're saying there in that uh, quotation? Yeah, that, uh, I mean, that sentence or two, in a way, it was in a, an attempt to respond to this debate about, especially the Paul within Judaism discussion, mm -hmm. right? Where... For a lot of scholars, I mean, quite rightly, I think uh, it, it um, it's just it's obviously, but also importantly, true that uh, Paul, not just before his revelation, but for his entire life, operates within the ambit of Judaism. But then some critics of that discussion have said, "Well, uh, but what about all these things he says that uh, seem to them?" <laughs> like defeaters for that claim, right? Like, like the kind of radical I, newness sort of that, yeah, that, so, that kind uh, of language. Yeah. So critics of the Paul within Judaism discussion will say, but how then can Paul say through the law, I've died to the law so that I might live to God? Or how can he say oh, to the Jews, I become like a Jew, right? As if he's not always one, right? Uh, or how can he say that, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the covenant with Moses written on tablets in letters uh, deals death, you know, or something like that, that two critics of the Paul within Judaism discussion will often uh, cite those texts, which is an important move, right? And say, well, if he was within Judaism in the way that a lot of other scholars want to affirm, he, he wouldn't be able to say those things. Mm -hmm. And I, I think there is, they're getting at something. The critics are getting at something when they point to some of those texts, because there are, you know, there are some interpreters, again, under a broadly Paul within Judaism label, who want to be able to say just uh, nothing changed, you know, basically. Nothing changed. Paul affirms the status quo ante for uh, Jews. He mm -hmm. has issues with Gentiles and them taking on the law of Moses and so on. But, but as for Jews and Judaism, he affirms the status quo ante, and. I think that that is not true. Uh, and some, so critics are right when they kind of smell that's, <laughs> that that's not true, that something's wrong with that. But I think they're usually wrong in what they affirm when they throw those texts from Paul around, because when they throw those texts from Paul around, I think they're often saying, aha, see, he vindicates Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that's also not true mm -hmm. in my view. Uh, but um, so part of what I do what I do briefly in this book and what I uh, have been working on at much more length recently is trying to show how some of these famously Christianizing or antinomian sounding texts in Paul uh, 
also uh, fit in the history of Judaism, in particular in the history of Jewish eschatology and mysticism, this kind of uh, the history of Jewish uh, speculation about, well, what happens when the resurrection of the dead comes mm. and what happens when the new creation comes. And turns out, uh, I mean, there's lots of really interesting, you know, sometimes rather bold and daring and, um, even antinomian, even more antinomian than Paul sort of, uh, statements in, uh, ancient and medieval, uh, Jewish literature, rabbinic and mystical and otherwise. Uh, in which I think these sayings of Paul uh, make really good sense. And mm. the reception history of Paul, of course, is almost entirely Christian. So, right. you know, with Christian hindsight, we look at those verses and say, oh, he's, he's affirming what Christians have come to say. But the, I mean, to my mind, the, the one genius observation at the kind of at the heart of the Paul within Judaism discussion that really ought never to go away is that well, when Paul said those things, he didn't yet mean them in the institutionally Christian way. He meant them mm -hmm. in a way he had to have meant them in a way that was intelligible to him as a, right. As a early Roman period Jew. Right. Um, and I think you can really powerfully make that case from, uh, the history of Jewish thought in antiquity in the middle ages around these issues. Um, so that's what I was trying to get at with this distinction. It's not between Judaism and Christianity, but between sort of, conventional quotidian Jewish piety and then eschatological Jewish mysticism or, yeah, or eschatology. Yeah. 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 And so statements like, you know, that people would point to also the, you know, his kind of credentials that he lists in Philippians three of having a righteousness of my own versus the righteousness that's in Christ. This is a, this is not a, a denigration in any way of the Torah, but that the eschatological righteousness that comes with, with Christ. I mean, that that's kind of like the, would you say like the ultimate aim to which one would, would aspire? So now that that's, that's come, that obviously is going to take on the ulti ultimate significance. Is that, would, yeah. would that be? Yeah, I think, I think, I think I would agree with the way you put it there. Yeah. It's that. So, um, the difference between Paul and most Christians ever, and most Jews ever too, is that he literally thought the resurrection of the dead was happening mm -hmm. because Jesus had just been raised from the dead, right? Uh, and so to talk about a kind of righteousness uh, in the law and sort of conventional uh, observance of the commandments, and then a kind of righteousness that exists after the resurrection of the dead, that's a well-attested distinction, again, mm -hmm. in uh, in a broad swath of Jewish literature, in, in apocalypses that are older than Paul, and certainly in rabbinic discussion, which comes after Paul, but which is independent on Paul. Um, so I, I think the key thing is that we often, interpreters often think when they read something like Philippians 3, when he talks about uh, you know, a righteousness uh, from Christ's faith that's not the righteousness of the law, that that's just Christianity he's describing. But I mean, historically in his context, it's not. Yeah, mm -hmm. He's talking about the kind of righteousness that uh, didn't exist in the world prior to the resurrection of the dead. And that now is, uh, yeah. Um, I, I think that, I mean, I, I have ended up arguing that Christian interpretation of Paul actually ends up deflating what I think Paul means by a lot of these terms, because they have to kind of 
<laughs> make it coincide with polite Christian piety, which in mm -hmm. his context, it's not. It's not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And so the, the kind of statements that you listed at the beginning about law and what Paul says about the law, one place then where where what you're arguing, it seems to me, may be going beyond or at least a wrinkle on what other, maybe some others, Matt Thiessen, I think, is probably more kind of where you're at, but where some others in the Paul within Judaism school have gone is um, – the, the Paul's statements about the law in these kind of polemical letters, like a Galatians, um, the observation that these are made to Gentiles about the law, that that is, I think is true on its face. Um, but the implications of what those statements, what, what Paul's saying in those statements would also bear on himself and other Jews if, in fact, the resurrection of the dead has come about. It, it, is that a, a fair thing to say? Yeah, that's that's right. So I I think, uh, you know, with uh, I agree with like Pamela Eisenbaum or Kathy Ehrensberger and so on who've said you you have to take into account that in a very well Paul's letters are addressed more or less entirely to Gentiles, and mm -hmm. so that's a relevant factor for the interpretation of any of them. Mm -hmm. That taking that into account does resolve a number of problems, but not all the problems. And one of the ones it doesn't resolve, in my view, is this. Yeah, there are. Um, so when, for instance, in Galatians 3, he talks about the curse of the law, uh, that, you know, a certain, some Paul within Judaism interpreters have wanted to say, oh, that just means when Gentiles use it the wrong way, then it becomes a curse, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's not the case. I think um, here I'm influenced a bit by a uh, one of your former classmates, a friend of both of ours, Esau Macaulay, his mm. uh, PhD thesis on Galatians, had a good discussion of this, which kind of helped me sort it out in my mind. The, the curse of the law, I think, is uh, death. It's the fact of death. And death uh, afflicts Jews as well as Gentiles. Mm -hmm. And um, what, what Paul thought that most Jews and Gentiles then and now... <laughs> Uh, didn't think and don't think is that you could actually not like the prospect of not dying was real to him. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and yeah, so the point is the curse of the law is not just, you can't, I, I don't think plausibly, you can't just say, Oh, that means when Gentiles do it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he thinks that the law of Moses legislated for mortal people. Mm -hmm which it did, it does, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, but when he talks about, when Paul talks about uh, life everlasting, Ionio Zoe, mm -hmm. uh, that is a kind of life that doesn't end in death. Mm -hmm. And so there's a kind of righteousness for that life that is different from what Moses wrote about, because Moses wrote about people who, of course, die. Mm -hmm. right? Um so that that shows that yeah, that's an example of one of these. What I think is kind of the yeah, some of the yeah. outer limits of this discussion. Yeah, super helpful. No, I, I appreciate that a lot. Yeah, I I think uh, was it An uh, Andrew Boyachi? Did he he wrote also about this as well, right? Um, uh, yeah. So yeah, he has his his book on Galatians is excellent on this, and that he like this, his book also made a penny drop for me. So Boyachi shows how uh, righteousness gets correlated with life in Galatians mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. sin or unrighteousness with death mm -hmm. and uh, 
coming to see how those the language of death and life doesn't just it's not like metaphorical for like you know a good kind of religion versus a bad kind of religion like it mm -hmm. literally means the right the fact of mortality mm -hmm. and uh paul living in the immediate aftermath of the resurrection of jesus like that's that's what he's talking about so it's mm -hmm. not and this is why uh yeah this is why i say it's not about judaism versus christianity about two different sort of patterns of religion um because he's actually talking about uh immortality in a way yeah. that not just jews but christians <laughs> don't seriously don't really. reckon with most of the time yeah no that's really helpful yep yeah that there's a question that paul asks that it clicked for me a little bit that when Paul's asking questions like, can the law make you alive or claiming that it can't make you alive? That's that he's not talking metaphorically. Like he's, he's actually saying nothing wrong with the Torah, but it cannot raise you from the dead. <laughs> only mm -hmm. the spirit, only the spirit can. And that seems to be yeah, an important point he wants to make. Well, we, we did get into a little bit of the, the audience question of Paul's in Paul's letters. And that leads me to um, another thing you write about in the book, which is, you know, speaking into I think I think one of your essays was originally published in the the so-called Jew. Uh, what was the title yeah. of that book? It, Rafael Rodriguez and Matthew Thiessen, um book. Yeah, the, the, so -called uh, the book Jew. is called The So-Called Jew in Romans 2. Yeah, something like uh, that. Or in okay. Paul's letter to the Romans. Something I, like I forget. that, right? Yeah, great book. Um, but you have a chapter in there, and it's published in here. And um, so there's been a lot of discussion uh, for those who maybe haven't been keeping up with everything, Paul. No fault of yours. There's a lot always going on. <laughs> um, but there's been a lot of discussion, especially, I think, driven within the Paul within Judaism school. Um, although, as you point out in the book, it's not really an inevitability that this would have to be the case. It just so happens that this is how it is, has turned out. But a lot of conversation about the, the ethnic identity of Paul's interlocutor in Romans 2, this person that he's speaking to emerges in chapter uh, very first verse of chapter 2. Who are you, good sir, to judge? So who's this judgy person? Um, and, uh, and then we get in verse 17, if you call yourself a Jew. Um, so what's at stake in this debate in terms of identifying the identity of the interlocutor? I don't think there's ever been so much debate over the identity of a fictive interlocutor in any text before, at least that I know of. So what's what's at stake in this in this question of who this person is and um, how, how do you seek to contribute to the conversation? I think what's at stake in this debate, and you're right, it's a kind of, you might think it's a tempest in a teapot or or maybe it's just a tempest. I don't uh but it, you're right. It's a huge debate around kind of a, a a pretty small exegetical issue, relatively speaking. But because the letter to the Romans, and especially the very early chapters of the letter to the Romans, uh, are sort of the locus classicus for a lot of traditional doctrines, Christian doctrines, especially in Western, so Roman Catholic and Protestant theologies uh, of sin and salvation. Yeah, and this was Stanley Stowers' sort of brilliant insight in his rereading of Romans book. Um, that the the weight of theological tradition sort of lies really heavy on the interpretation of these chapters. Mm -hmm. And you know, a, a, a very common way the story goes is uh, 
by the time you get to Romans 3.20, Paul has sort of condemned, universally condemned everyone. Mm -hmm. And so that in 321 and following, you have uh, Paul's de declaration of salvation for for everyone. So very universalizing and, and a kind of an assumption about how the early chapters of Romans work this way, right? Mm -hmm. That it's uh, condemning, 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 and then uh, an announcement of salvation. And then, and the usual way that that series of condemnations is read is to say, well, there's a few different ways it's done. Uh, some say he's just condemning everybody all the time from the start. Mm -hmm. Or the other common way it's done is to say that in Romans chapter one, he maybe starts by condemning Gentiles who are wantonly immoral. And then in chapter two, he condemns Jews who uh, are not wantonly immoral, but uh, maybe think they're better than others, but aren't really, or something like that. Um, so the argument, which, uh, I mean, appears here and there in the long history of interpretation, but it really, I mean, the most important living uh, proponent of this idea was Runer Thorsteinson, the, the Icelandic scholar who wrote a book on this, the very early aughts, right, turn of the millennium, uh, arguing that uh, when Paul says, if you call yourself or are called a Jew, that he actually means someone who sort of has the name, but not the thing, mm -hmm. that it's about a a Gentile posing as a Jew or proselytizing to Judaism or something like that. Um, and I argue with a number of others uh, that, that the revisionist reading is correct, that actually in Romans 2, 17 and following, he's talking about Gentile Judaizing and not about Jews or Israel as such. But that's a really controversial uh, and has stirred a lot of debate, I think, because Romans 1 to 3 is such a kind of, say, mixing metaphors horribly here, but it's, it's such a kind of sacred cow to uh, so many Christian, especially Protestant interpreters. I try to argue that actually could have lowering the temperature, de-theologizing the debate of it would, is helpful. Because um, I think a lot of a lot of the things that some of those, the fiercest defenders of a, of a more traditional reading want, actually, you could still, and I still do, end up affirming in a rather different way. But um, but I, I think you actually miss something then that I think is real significant about the letter if you don't grasp the point that, as I read it, he is talking in Romans 2 as he talks through all of Galatians and also a bit in Philippians about this phenomenon, which was a real problem for him of Gentiles undergoing proselyte circumcision because they think they needed it to be right with God and Christ. Um, I think it's no accident and no surprise that it, that it should show up in Romans 2. Uh, it just means then that the rhetoric, the argument of Romans 1, 2, and 3 work differently than you might think from most of the standard commentaries and so on. Yeah. And so to, just for people that are, if you're really dialed into Romans and you're wondering, okay, so how does Matt then put this together? If it's all about Gentiles, your argument is that in, when you get into chapter three, I think it's like three, nine, is it where, you know, Paul does make a statement about Jews as well. He, he basically has this catena of scripture quotations uh, to show, hey, you know, within our sacred text traditions, um, they, they, they condemn us to an extent as well. Right. And this is, it's not an anti-Jewish thing to say. I mean, you have prayers of confession of corporate sin and, hey, we've, we've, um, you know, we've 
we've fallen, we've broken covenant with the Lord. And so for Paul to pull that out, that's not a, um, yeah, it's not an anti-Jewish claim in any, in any sense. He's just showing from scripture that the scriptures speak directly to the Jewish people as well. Um, but your, your point is basically that that's, a that's not the, that's not the main feature in Romans one and two Romans one and two is doing something other than condemning everybody collectively. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's right. I, so I think that Paul means what he says when he ends up saying in chapter three, that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Uh, but I think that Paul thinks in a way different from what most of us nowadays would say. It, it, he thinks that I, I, he has a kind of ethnically chauvinist kind of view of this. He thinks that Gentiles are just bad people. Right. Uh, right. And he thinks that Jews are not perfect, but they're normally good people. Right. Uh, and uh, now all of them, he'll say, are under sin. But the way I understand the argument of Romans 3 to work is that um, he says he knows that uh, Jews are subject to sin because Scripture says so. So he knows it from Scripture, whereas he knows that Gentiles are sinful from experience, from the just looking at like, the from, world. Yeah, they all worship from, idols, and yeah, yeah, live yeah. these profligate so lifestyles. He does not even, I think, you know, uh, he doesn't even entertain the notion of like the. You know the 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 righteous Gentile you might run into and go oh how did he manage to be so virtuous Philo, you know speculates about why how, how that could be the case Paul does not Paul doesn't think there are any such mm -hmm. un, un, unless and until they receive the pneuma the spirit of God which sort of remakes them from the inside yeah um, yeah. yeah 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 and then um, you also have. I mean, part of your argument is also looking at not only what he says about the so-called Jew earlier on in the letter, but what he says about actual Jews in Romans nine through eleven. So, how do you how do you connect how do you connect that? Yeah, so Romans two talks about the one who is called or calls himself a Jew. Uh, Romans nine through eleven talks mostly about Israel. Um, I think, uh, and again, all of this stuff, of course, is controversial i think that uh israel and the jews denominates more or less the same group of people for paul mm -hmm. um so you don't follow like jason staples argument in no well i think i think staples argument in his book about the idea of israel is is right that there well i think there are some hellenistic and roman period writers who distinguish israel from Jews or Judeans as kind of part from whole, right? 12 mm -hmm. tribes versus uh, mm -hmm. one tribe or whatever. I don't see that distinction in Paul. So okay. yeah, that's is where I disagree with Staples' argument about Paul. Um, but what Paul faults Israel with in Romans 9 to 11 is not sort of uh, anything like what he says in chapter two, in, in Romans chapter two, about, you know, not practicing what you preach and so on what he faults Israel for in Romans nine through 11 is not trusting the announcement of Jesus, the crucified Messiah, because Paul knows what was in fact the case that most Jews in his day did not believe that Jesus was the crucified, you know, that Jesus was the Messiah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that's what Paul faults them with quote unquote in, in Romans nine through 11. And I think that's so different from Romans two that I, I think 
that's part of my reason for thinking that Romans two is about uh, a, a Gentile Judaizer and not sort of uh, Paul's assessment of his co-ethnics. Yeah. Have you speculated much on on this too? I, I've I've often wondered this when we're thinking about the the missionary movement that Paul's fighting against in Galatians, Romans, Philippians. Um, who who do you 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 had a cryptic statement in one of your? Um, I think it was when you were commenting on Philippians in one of your essays. But the the identity of of this group um, are these. Are these Jewish Christ followers, missionaries, like, uh, you know, people from, I mean, Paul mentions uh, in Galatians 2, people from the men, uh, men from James came up from Jerusalem to Antioch or whatever. I think the standard line is that we assume there were some, and then maybe from Acts 15 also, there's the mention of the Pharisees, the Christ following Pharisees who want to um, have Gentiles circumcised or whatever. But we don't actually get the identity of these of, of this group ever in Paul's letters. He mentions them as agitators in Galatians. Do you have any thoughts on like what the logic of this group might have been, or who you think they they might have been? It seems to me like if I'm reading between the lines incorrectly, but some of what you might be suggesting is something that I've speculated a lot about, which is that these might have been actually proselytes. Uh, mm. Christ followers who are Jewish proselytes. Yeah. Yes, I do have thoughts. I do have thoughts. Uh, and I've, I've got, I've just, uh, I've got a book manuscript that's just gone up to press um, that uh, makes this argument um, among a number of other arguments, but it's about, um, there's a chapter of the book that argues at great length that uh, you can identify maybe at, at least, but probably, and maybe just two main groups of quote unquote opponents in Paul's letters. Um, ones who we know are Jewish, the evidence for whom is in uh, two Corinthians chapters 10 to 13, the so-called super apostles or false apostles and so on. We know they're Jewish because he says so again and again, they're Israelites, they're Hebrews, they're sons of Abraham and so on. And then in Galatians, especially also in Philippians and a little bit in Romans, there's this idea of people who come preaching circumcision. And I think without exception, every passage about such people in Paul suggests that they are recent proselytes themselves. Oh. Uh, I, it was a bit fuzzy to me before I started working on it. And then I sort of worked through all these texts and I said, I, actually, I don't think there's a sink. I don't think it's ambiguous at all. Um, so that argument will be forthcoming, but no, I think uh, that's fantastic. I look forward um, to reading that. I've been saying that to students in class for years now, but I always qualify it with saying, "Hey, this is my speculation on it. I haven't done the the research, so I'm excited to see what you've got." It's cool. Yeah, read it when it comes out. I mean, it's a minority view, so again, that won't. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I really think that's the case. Um, the idea was associated with the name of Johannes Munch, uh, especially as Danish scholar from Aarhus in the mid 20th century. Um, and he made this argument in Galatians and made a few really powerful points. And I kind of looked at his arguments and then looked at, uh, I mean, others have uh, talked about this possibility too, but yes. So I, I think that's the case. I think that the, the people advocating proselyte circumcision uh, that Paul's reckoning with are themselves recent 
proselytes. Wow. Very cool. Is that going to be in your new Paul book or do you have a separate, is there a separate article that's coming out? Yes. No, there's a, yeah, a new, a new Paul book out this time next year, probably awesome. that will have that argument in it. All right. Well, may have to have you back on the podcast to talk about it. That's cool. <laughs> uh, last, okay. One more question for you before we, uh, before we cut you loose. Um, so you mentioned already, Paul, um, the, uh, one of these statements used as kind of a defeater uh, for the Paul of the Judaism school when I, I became as a Jew to Jews, as a Gentile to Gentiles, this kind of language in 1 Corinthians 9.20. Obviously, rhetorically, Paul is using this as a kind of model of seeking the good of the other and trying to get the Corinthians to get out of their, their doing the opposite of that, uh, selfishness or whatever. Um, but that that brings up, you know, there's a, there's a lot of inferences people make in terms of like what is, what is Paul doing there um can Paul's halakhic practices change based on context uh, I think think we can see that they can potentially so I just like to hear you kind of unpack what you what you think he means by that what does it mean to live you know among gentiles and maybe even could you connect that to what he says to Peter when they're in Antioch um living gentilishly to, to Peter. Cause I, I know so many people that read that naturally. I think most Christians, when they read that, they think, Oh, Peter wasn't following the law anymore. Uh, Peter, Peter was, was done with the law now at this point. And, but then he goes back to it because James men from, from James come up. So what is that? What is that? What's Paul talking about there? Yeah. Uh, well, you're right. I mean, I think in one Corinthians nine, the point rhetorically is he's saying, I accommodate others, so you all should too, right? That's that's the reason, that's the occasion for that passage. And there he presents it as a virtue. I mean, it's, of course, interesting aspect of the reception history of that passage. Kevin Concano has discussed this, that, I mean, that passage has often been read uh, by some ancient critics of Christianity as showing that Paul is like not to be trusted, right? <laughs> like he's, like he lacks integrity. He's two-faced, two yeah. Kind yeah, of thing. he's two-faced. Yeah. He's a... He's a uh, yeah, he's a con man or something. And he tells you that. Yeah, right? that's funny. Uh, yeah. Which, which just the, the, the point there is just that, you know, uh, uh, the, the value judgment is a secondary uh, thing to the way, way he presents itself. What, what would you think of someone who changed who they were in different circumstances? Mm -hmm. Anyway, I think the way he, I, I mean, I think he means it sincerely. Uh, and I think his kind of theological rationale for it is that the way Paul, as I understand it, the way he thinks to himself that he can sort of, uh, you know, cross ethnic lines like this is that he thinks he's a pneumatic. That is that he has a kind of existence because he has the pneuma or spirit of God that's remade him. That he's, this is what Albert Schweitzer called in his book on Paul, the resurrection mode of existence, that he kind of lives the life of an angel or something almost, that he's mm -hmm. beyond the merely human. Um, I think that's the kind of probably the, the theological idea I think Paul has be, behind his kind of, um, so, but of course elsewhere, right? Like Philippians three, Paul insists that he, he sure as hell is a Jew, right? Right. A Hebrew right. circumcised and so on. So like both of these are true. Right. Uh, and I, I think the way I synthesize it in, in from what Paul himself says, is I, I think he thinks that to the extent that he or other people still have mortal bodies, 
That's his term in Romans 6 and 8. Um, mortal bodies come in two types, Jewish and not. Mm -hmm. And the commandments of God, there are different sets of commandments of God that pertain to Jewish bodies and Gentile bodies. And in to the extent that you're still in a mortal body, you're accountable to those commandments. But if you have the pneuma of God inside you, you're, you're actually, uh, you're, you've partly transcended mm. mortal existence that comes in, in, you know, kind of sexed and ethnic binary kinds of, of bodies. Um, so I think this is why Paul thinks that he can kind of adapt his life. Transcend, yeah. Um, but in fact, also socially, there's a, there's a really good book forthcoming from Ruben Buner, someone you and I both know mm -hmm. who's his, uh, habilitation, uh, at Zurich was on this question of diaspora Jewish, mm -hmm. uh, halakha or, or, you know, legal, um, mm -hmm. thinking. Uh, and he argues in a way I find really persuasive that, um, I mean, probably Paul and Cephas and Antioch, right? If you're, if you're accustomed to moving about in the diaspora, there's all kinds of concessions and accommodations that you're just used to making that, mm -hmm. that you wouldn't count as violating the Torah or living in mm -hmm. antinomian existence. Like you would consider it being observant in, in the way that you can be living in, in the kind of city you do or alongside mm -hmm. the kind of people you do. Mm -hmm. but that kind of piety in the, in the, in the nature of the case will often be very different from the kind of piety that you can observe in the homeland, um, where you can assume that everybody else is also kind of keeping similar observances, uh, and so on. And so Buner argues that, I mean, a lot of the, the concrete moves Paul made probably were things that diaspora Jews did all the time mm -hmm. in antiquity. Um, and that somebody might call living Gentilishly, mm -hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that they were, they were thinking they were sort of violating the law. They were mm -hmm. living the law the way you can, if you live in a Gentile city or something, That's cool. but the, but that the, the theological layer on top of that is that Paul thinks he's doing it because he has this, uh, he has the prerogatives of a pneumatic of someone who, uh, is living beyond the confines of normal mm -hmm. human existence, whether Jewish or Gentile. That's cool. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I'm actually having Ruben on the podcast too, in a little bit, we're going to be talking about high messianism, but, um, he shared with me his project a couple years ago at SBL and I thought it was really fascinating. So it's, that's awesome that he's, um, he's coming out with a book. I think that's, that's really fantastic. Yeah. I was even thinking, you know, as you were talking about, you know, even a text like the letter of Aristeus, like what are the implications of Jewish scribes coming from Jerusalem to, you know, to dine with the pagan king in, in Egypt? What would that, what would that dinner look like? And, you know, what were, uh, how would that even be, um, you know, would that put one in a, in a precarious position potentially? Right. Um, and so, it's it's interesting, like even in a text like that, you have these really pious Jewish scribes from Jerusalem priests who are coming down and just having this meal with uh, with this Ptolemaic king and and it's all of the philosophical conversation about the law and you know well it's just yeah it's it's kind of all there in the text so I'm really interested to see what Reuben has to say. Mm. Um, all right. 
can I sneak in one really quick, one more? It's a kind of it's kind of a meta question that I want to ask you. Um, yeah, sure, sure. Having, having so having read the book and just processing everything, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'd, I I generally just kind of want to know what you're thinking on this is. So it's not in any way a pushback on the book. Um, the imp the impression that I that I got after reading the book would be that clearly theology can be an obstacle to reading Paul historically. Um, but I I was also wondering like, is there actually any? Like we obviously all have to read Paul from somewhere, and the ideal of reading him historically on his own terms, I think, I think is 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 admirable. I mean, it's if we're claiming to to provide a historical reading of an author, then we should be doing such. Um, but I'm I'm just wondering if within modern scholarship, I do think sometimes there is a an ideal when it comes to getting theology out that that points to some kind of pristine historical reading. Um, I, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, yeah, how do you think about it at the end of the day? Like, um, we're, we're, if we get theology out, what kind of, like, what, 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 what would a, what would an ideal place to approach Paul historically look like, I guess? Mm -hmm. Um, does that make sense? I know I'm kind of I'm fumbling around here a little bit, but I'm I'm just trying to identify like what what would put somebody in the best possible position to read Paul well uh, historically. Oh, what would what would be the best possible position? Yeah, I mean, just a bit of self awareness, self criticism, uh, just the 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 ability to say whatever interests, whatever other interests I may have which are in, maybe in theory entirely worthy and appropriate. And there's a, you know, no problem with them at the moment. I'm just interested. I'm interested in how, how did this mean in the fifties CE? Mm -hmm. That's all it is. It's just a, uh, I mean, you mentioned there echoing the kind of a very apt criticism, like of Lara Nasrallah, that, uh, historical criticism can kind of claim to a kind of, uh, pristine view from nowhere. Right. Sort of. Mm -hmm. And, I think with your, what I took to be a sort of note of skepticism from you there and what, and in agreement with like what Nasrallah is on record as saying, uh, right. There isn't, I, I think there is no view from nowhere. There's in fact, no such thing I would want to say as objectivity, um, in as much as we always read from our own subjectivities and that's just part of being human. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and for some of us, uh, our subjectivities will include like actual theological questions. I mean, and I have those, I mean, I happen to be a Christian reader, other brilliant readers of Paul, some of them are not. And so they don't have maybe constructive theological interests in the letters of Paul, the way Christian readers like me would. But I also, and, uh, and here's where I maybe differ a bit from my, my other, uh, my own co-religionists, some of them readers of Paul, and that I want to say, but the fact that I have theological interests in the letters doesn't mean that I can only ever ask this one kind of question about them, right? Because I also, I have all kinds of, I have historical interests. I have kind of feminist or other ethical interests, and I have all kinds of interests. And, and relatedly then, all kinds of questions I might want to ask of the text. Mm -hmm. 
And so I have, I don't have any objectivity because I'm always operating from my own subjectivity, but it's, I can ask different kinds of questions and mm -hmm. to that extent, read the letters differently, looking to know different things. Mm -hmm. Uh, and part of my point about what I call hermeneutical relativism in the book is I don't think you actually have to read historically before you can go on and do anything else. Like if you mm -hmm. want to do mm -hmm. a, you know, a, 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 uh, Roman Catholic theological reading of Romans 14, or if you want to do a sort of, uh, a, a gender queer reading of Galatians three or whatever, you're like, go for it. Like you don't have to do historical criticism first, mm -hmm. but I also think that, you know, what we or uh, sometimes call historical criticism, if suitably sort of chastened is, you know, just another word for asking questions about the past, which mm -hmm. we sometimes might have good reason to do, mm -hmm. even though there are lots of other questions, not about the past that we might have equal or better reason to do. Mm -hmm. And I, I just wanted to carve out space for yeah. uh, people to feel free to, to read in those different ways. I think that's good for the most part. That's a, that's a net good. So, yeah, no, I'm totally with you. Yeah. I just want to hear more about that. Um, would you, do you feel like when you look at, um, so I, I'm thinking like back to the statement of making Paul weird again. I mean, it's funny to kind of end there. Um, I, I was almost thinking, <laughs> I was trying to think about this a little bit in terms of like how some historical Jesus research has, has, has gone in the past. Like if Jesus looks too Christian, that can't be the, that can't be the historical mm -hmm. Jesus. Do you feel like that sometimes with Paul? Like if Paul comes off looking too Christian, that that can't be the historical Paul or too too Christian in the ways that he's looked, you, you know, I don't know. That was a little bit of the sense that I got in the book. I might have been over over reading it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. It, yeah, kind of. I mean, I wouldn't say it can't be the historical Paul, then, right? There, there, there may indeed be. There probably are some cases where the two might line up. Uh, but I think it's like an occupational hazard, right? That's why, uh, I mean, you should, so the, the, the cover of the book has, and it, then, chapter then, one then. discusses, right? There's this famous painting by Rembrandt, yeah. which is called his self-portrait as the apostle Paul, where he, yeah. which is just an amazing thing, right? I mean, he, he paints himself as Paul, Paul yeah. and Rembrandt at the same time. And that uh, I kind of use as a, as an image for how the interpretation of Paul often goes, you know, it doesn't mean that Rembrandt and Paul didn't have some actual things uh, in genuine common or something, but I, I, yeah, I, I'm this kind of collapsing between then and now yes. or between me, the yes. reader and Paul, the writer is uh, that's the occupational hazard I'm trying to flag up and yeah. say, um, so it's not that readings like that might not sometimes happen on the historical Paul, but that methodologically you should be on the lookout. And yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, great. Thanks so much, Matt, for your time. Awesome book, everybody. Uh, really great uh, scholarship. It's so well written, as always, with a Matt Novenson book. But um, it's a really enjoyable read, um, really insightful. So if you're looking for, if you're into Pauline studies and you're looking for fresh angles into questions that people are asking right now in the discipline, this is a really great book to dive in and Matt does a great job of introducing you to some of the primary voices in the conversation and um, highly, highly recommended it. Thanks. Thanks, Matt, for your time. That's great. Thanks, Max, for reading it and <laughs> discussing it with me. Awesome.
you've just finished another episode of On The Way. Thanks so much for listening to us. We so appreciate it. If you haven't already, make sure that you are following or subscribed to the podcast so that you get the release of each new episode. And we'd very much appreciate if you would write us or rate us on whichever podcast platform you use. That would be awesome. The biggest encouragement I have is for you to consider joining our Facebook group if you haven't already. Link is posted in the episode description. This is a community for all people to just come together, encourage one another in our faith, share resources, and continue on this journey together. Thanks all. We love you. (music) 